Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast that's even better than mom used to make. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. Did you remember to leave out the glue vine and panettone for Santa? I don't know why I said anything the way I did. Yeah. I don't know. Italian seems like a gray area. I I spent three days, four days in Italy when I was studying abroad. And the only words I learned were grazie and scusi. Well, that's all you really need. I mean, it got me through four days in Italy. Well, hi, everybody. It's been a minute. Um, We've missed you. There's been some big changes around here. Yeah, I have an Italian last name and I, I can't pronounce panettone. How, oh, uh, it's even more shameful now. We've spent all this time talking about it, and I forgot that you are now Italian by marriage. Barely. And can't uh, pronounce any Italian. Um, No, because I might be Italian by marriage, but I will always be Scottish by heritage. <laughs> this is our holiday special, and it was hard to arrive here because I feel like we peaked a couple years ago. <laughs> It's it's all downhill from here, Christmas-wise. I, I mean, the holiday music episode was pretty fun. They're all pretty fun, but they're just not, you know... They're not a full Christmas not a carol. book adaptation of a Christmas carol. But this isn't about a Christmas carol. This is about Christmas food. The best part about Christmas, I would argue. Yes. Uh, I like buying people presents, and I like making a bunch of food. So Christmas is perfect. No notes. Um, actually, I have quite a few notes. So yeah, this year we're going to take a look at some of the the foods that people enjoy during the holidays. Um, Christmas specifically, I I didn't get into ha- traditional Hanukkah foods. Maybe next year. Love what you you're should doing. Do an though. all Hanukkah episode at some point. Yeah, like, two. Just say fuck Christmas. Two Gentiles some year. Who I think I know like two p- Jewish people who don't really celebrate. Uh, yeah, we'll do great. That'll be great. Yeah, it'll be fine. Totally cool. So we're going to look at foods in different countries, some foods in different countries. So if there's a traditional food from one of the countries that we're talking about that you love, tell us about it, because yeah. I love food. I'm sure we missed plenty. I know I definitely did. Oh, oh yeah. told me about one, like, yesterday that I threw in at the last minute. <laughs> one of my countries, I had, like, 15 foods listed, and it's like, I, can't, I have to just pick, like, three. Let's see. How are we going to decide who goes first? Uh, rock, paper, scissors. I think I have a D2. Oh, yeah. Do that. Am I one or two? You are one. Ah, number one. Okay. Hold this on. is true. I am God, these, these dice that Sadie got me are fucking beautiful. Uh, I need to dig my back out again. We need to, like, play a good game of D&D. Just we to need to finish that arc dice. that we were doing on Monster Pod. Also that, too. <laughs> but yeah, the ones that she got me are, like, uh, teal and purple and, like, magenta and glittery, and it's just... So very much you. Yes. Okay. Now that I have found my D2, which is actually a number one and then a Kraken because... Oh, so you're the Kraken. Yes. I am the Kraken. All right. drinking Kraken and you are the Kraken. Yes. So just a tip for all of you guys who buy Spice Drum for the holidays but still enjoy a Cuba Libre. Um, (laughs) Dr. Pepper and Kraken, Spice Drum, it's called the Doc Ock. It's wonderful. All right. Flipping... And I will go first. Excellent. You have to call it Ones or Krakens. <laughs> I think I'm going to watch Scrooged this year. I've never seen it. Isn't that the one with Bill Murray? That's the Christmas Carol with Bill Murray, yes. Yes. Just all of the holiday movies I watch are going to be Christmas Carol adaptations. We watched Home Alone over Thanksgiving when I was back mm-hmm. home with my family. And it's been probably 20 years since I've seen that movie. Probably 25 <laughs> It's a solid movie. It's the best Christmas movie. So um, good. <laughs> we have a tradition where on the 23rd, uh, we get not necessarily a large cheese pizza uh, anymore, <laughs> um, but we get a pizza and we have uh, hot chocolate and we watch Home Alone and exchange presents. And by we, I mean just Travis and I, because, you know, you get the family and everything and then your presents get lost in the shuffle. But mm-hmm. it's also an excuse to eat pizza. That's a good Good tradition. Um, all right. So my first country is Mexico. Woo! Um, so unsurprisingly, given how Spanish colonizers kind of did their whole thing in Central America, uh, Christmas time is a 
pretty big deal in Mexico. They are very Catholic. They are incredibly Catholic. And their holiday season lasts from roughly December 12th to January 6th, with a special bonus holiday in February. Uh, So over the course of this time, there are several feasts and observances, almost all of which include a food element. Um, And there are a couple foods that popped up the most often. Uh, And also, this is going to be my longest section because fuck you, I do what I want. It's fine. I'll let you carry this whole episode. It's fine. Uh, It just means that you have to do our first episode back. All right. So tamales are the the first food and they can be traced back to 8000 BC. Damn. Making them one of the oldest foods that is still regularly eaten today. Tamales have staying power. That's very impressive. It's because tamales are delicious. There's that. So they were a huge deal in Aztec culture because they were uh, portable and rich in protein, which is very important Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to be off battling and and what have you. Um, And if you want some background on corn in Mesoamerican cultures, I think I went into it a little bit in the taco episode because we had to cover tortillas and there's, you know, a lot of... Quite a storied history, yes. I mean, if you might be asking yourself, what is a tamale? I mean, I know you aren't, Sarah, but someone out there might be. Um, There's definitely at least one person out there who's like, the fuck? Basically, it's masa, which is a corn dough, uh, wrapped around a filling that can either be savory or sweet, and then it's wrapped in a corn husk, plantain leaf, or banana leaf. Uh, Most often, it's a dried, rehydrated corn husk, and then it's steamed. Uh, in the pre-Columbian era, the Aztecs ate tamales with fillings such as, I hope you're ready for this list, uh, turkey, flamingo, frog, axolotl, pocket gopher, rabbit, fish, turkey eggs, honey, fruits, squash, and beans. And even no filling. So just steamed corn dough. You know, axolotl is an interesting choice. Flamingo isn't the one that did it for you? <laughs> no, because like with birds, I get it. Like, I'm sure all birds to some degree taste like chicken. Like, right? Like, that makes sense. Uh, axolotl? We'll talk about how birds taste in a bit. Um, yeah, I have no desire, uh, to, to know what an axolotl tastes like. Um, so today, fillings are equally as diverse, but range more in the chili and cheese, spiced beef, pork, chicken, turkey for the savory flavors, then fruit, nuts, caramel, all that for sweet varieties. I've actually never had a sweet tamale. Yeah, me neither. Those sound delicious, though. And I'll probably go to Mexican food jail for this, but Trader Joe's actually has a chili and cheese tamale in their frozen section that slaps. It's fucking delicious. But the best tamales are the ones that a lady sells you out of a cooler on the street. Always. So the process of making tamales is, for lack of a better phrase, a huge pain in the ass. (laughs) It's like an all-day affair, uh, which means that it's usually reserved for holidays and special occasions. Hence how tamales became a staple food for the Christmas season, because basically, when you make tamales, you make a shitload of tamales. That makes a lot of sense. Like, if you're going to put that much work into it, it's going to be a Christmas thing. Yes. Or I think also uh, Day of the Dead, Easter, birthdays, that kind of thing. It's a comfort food. Um, So specifically, they come up during a series of events called uh, Las Posadas, which is a series of processions and parties between December 16th and December 24th that involve nativity reenactments, piñatas, and a lot of food. Um, Another tamale-involved tradition is Dia de los Tres Reyes Magos, or Three Kings Day. Oh, yeah. Which is on January 6th, which we as Uh, Reformed Catholics uh, also know about. Yeah, but not Feast of the Epiphany. Right? No, I think the Epiphany is the sixth. Like, the Epiphany is the same thing. It's when the three kings actually got there. Yes. I couldn't remember if that was the correct name, but I know it is a thing because that's my sister-in-law's birthday. Oh, no kidding. So, on January 6th, families eat rosca, which is a Mexican variation on king cake that has raisins, milk, anise, cinnamon, vanilla, candied fruit. Um, And like with king cake, there's a small plastic baby inside. Delightful. And whoever gets the baby has to buy everyone tamales and atole, which is a corn-based <laughs> hot chocolate situation, Ooh. on Candlemas, which is a feast celebrated on February 2nd. So basically you have... Oh, second Christmas. Yes. So you basically have from January 6th to February 2nd to save up to buy tamales and atole for your whole family. That's sweet. So that's tamales. And now I really want one. Me too. You've- Why are we... F- <laughs> we always do this. Record food episodes, and then I'm just starving. Um, well, it's about to get worse, because uh, my next food from Mexico is buñuelos, which I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. I've only ever read it. I've never heard of this. I'm very intrigued. 
Yeah, uh, they are another treat enjoyed during Las Posadas. Um, they are beautiful little rounds of sugar-dipped fried dough. Damn. That are found in many different cuisines, but these specifically seem to have roots in Spanish cuisine, um, which means that there are a ton of variations of them all over Spanish colonized countries. Because you use what you have. Right. Um, so in countries like uh, Cuba, they're made with yucca root. And in Colombia, yucca? Yucca? Yucca. Whatever. It's a starchy it's root. Um, and in Colombia, cheese is an ingredient. They're more of a savory treat. Uh, in Mexico, however, the bignello is made from a yeasted flour dough, uh, sometimes with a little bit of anise seed mixed in. And then it is either rolled very thin and fried or shaped in a cast iron flour-shaped mold before being fried. They're then dipped in powdered sugar and cinnamon and sometimes served with a hot sugar syrup made from a a Mexican cane sugar that is occasionally flavored with guava. Literally cannot make that sound any better than it already does. Yeah, if you can picture an elephant ear, but make it slightly fruity and a little better. Oh, yes. Um, So our last food from Mexico is ponche, which I think I pronounced more French than Spanish, but... Happens to the best of us. That's where we're going to leave our tour of Mexico. So... Uh, Ponche or Ponche Navideño Mexicano is a fruit punch served hot. There's a lot of elements of this that sound weird in theory, but I think they work out in the end. So hot fruit punch. uh, It's made using water, fresh and dried fruits, like a tecote, which is like a crab apple from what I can tell. Uh, Guavas, plums, mandarins, oranges, prunes, hibiscus, uh, sugarcane, cinnamon, and it's sweetened with piloncillo which is an unrefined cane sugar sold in Central and South America in, like, little cones. It's very cool. Um, And it's sometimes spiked with tequila. And hot tequila is where it lost me for a second. I mean, when you blend it with all the other stuff, I'm sure you can't, like, taste even taste the hot tequila. Uh, So, like the other foods, it's commonly served during Las Posadas along with, you know, all of the other treats. So those are our three traditional foods from Mexico. Delightful. Well, I'm going to take us not on a tour because we, we've got one stop. It's like a whistle stop tour. <laughs> it's it's a layover in France <laughs> <laughs> from Mexico to France. Uh, and in France, it is traditional for families to serve um, a classic Christmas treat, La Bouche de Noël. Oh, I which love I these. learned about in French class. <laughs> I make one of these every year. I specifically chose this just because I wanted to say Bouche de Noël. It's very good. So fun. Uh, Bouche de Noël is also popular in Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and of course, like former French colonies like Canada, Vietnam, Lebanon, anywhere where they speak French, they're eating La Bouche de Noël. Uh, so the less fun way to say La Bouche de Noël is Yule Log Cake, which is the you know direct translation. Um, and it's a sponge cake rolled up into a cylinder, kind of like a jelly roll, and then covered with icing. So like the most common combination is yellow sponge cake with chocolate buttercream. Though of course, there are always variations. There's chocolate cake, chocolate ganache, or like icing that's flavored with espresso. What, Ooh. What's your combination when you make yours? Um, so I do a different combination every time I make it. Um, so I've done chocolate cake with orange and then whipped cream mm-hmm. in the middle and then chocolate ganache mm-hmm. on top. Um, I've done chocolate peppermint this year. Ooh. I'm I'm going a little crazy. I found some cream cheese chips at the store. So oh my god. Oh I'm, oh my god. <laughs> I'm going to do um a vanilla cake with uh cream cheese frosting and cranberry, I guess sauce, but like a cranberry jam uh rolled up and then I'm going to try to make a ganache out of those cream cheese chips to to drizzle over it. So it's a snowy um, bouche de Noel. Can you slice it up and send me some? Oh, it barely travels the two hours home. <laughs> uh, so the important part of this whole process, when you you know roll up the nice little cake and everything, is you ice it and then you drag a fork through the icing to create a bark-like texture. So you want it to actually look like a log. That's yes. important. Um, other decorations are often added, including like a sprinkling of powdered sugar to look like snow. You add little berries or marzipan mushrooms or like some people even like put on little actual tree branches. Lots of fun, cute little ways to decorate your bouche de Noël. Uh, Mary Berry, whose uh, recipe I use of Great British Bake Off fame, uh, she suggests using a little toy bird on top. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's really cute. <laughs> 
Uh, so the tradition of La Bouche de Noël dates back centuries, and its origins, like many of our Christ- Christmas traditions, are pagan. So yep. in medieval times, La Bouche de Noël was an actual log made of wood. I thought you said the evil times. I'm like, that is a little <laughs> harsh. In the evil times, when what Satan ruled the earth. <laughs> uh, so families families would like cut off a large log, sometimes usually from like a fruit tree, and they would place it in their hearth, and they would light it on Christmas Eve. And the idea was like, if the log burns for at least three days, it's going to bring you good luck in the new year. And depending on the region and its beliefs, you'd also like sprinkle it with salt or wine or holy water before lighting it on a fire. Um, and that kind of like correlated to what you were asking for in the new year. So like if you sprinkled wine, it was supposed to guarantee a bountiful grape harvest. If that was kind of what you did and what your region grew. Okay. Uh, and then after it had burned all the way, the ashes and coals left over were believed to provide protection and would be used in various medicinal potions throughout the year. That's a lot different than just a delicious (laughs) cake. (laughs) A little bit. So it said that the tradition began to change from, you know, tree to dessert in the 19th century under the rule of Napoleon Bonaparte. So as the story goes, he issued a proclamation ordering the people of Paris to close the chimneys of their houses during the winter. So the belief was that at the time that cold air brought illness into the house and Napoleon's proclamation was like supposed to prevent disease. Uh, So with the use of their (laughs) hearse prohibited, yes, there are problems with this. Uh, The Yule Log Cake was invented in its place. How are they supposed to heat their homes? This is my question. (laughs) I think I think part of this, and this goes to like what the real explanation probably was, is people had moved to wood stoves at the time. So it was more like people, you could use your wood stove to heat and, you know, cook and all of that, um, which is actually also probably the reason why this tradition kind of changed. Because like, you don't have a hearth anymore. It's a wood burning stove. And so you bring in smaller logs just as kind of like a decorative reminder. And then like at some point, people are like, why are we just looking at this tree? when we could bake a cake and eat the cake. I often have that thought. <laughs> so that's 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 a hypothesis, but we need to do an episode on on Napoleon cuz I realize that I know nothing about him other than he was allegedly short and he had a thing for hats. <laughs> I know so many scattered things about Napoleon, but I could not give you like a chronological like what did he actually do? Oh, he lost at Waterloo, but it also gave us that wonderful ABBA song. He lost at Waterloo. He was supposedly short, but not really short, and that's myth. Uh, he ruled France for a long time, and he got exiled, and he died in exile. Was he a dictator? Or was just a kind of? See, he was an emperor technically. Ah, okay. I don't, I don't, but like I have no understanding of how he came to power. Yeah, we should probably do a Napoleon episode, <laughs> maybe eventually. I don't know. I don't want to waste our history episodes on old guy, old white guys. I just feel like this is something that we should probably know as citizens of the world. I don't know. People can go read Wikipedia. <laughs> I will probably eat an edible later and do exactly that. Um, <laughs> incidentally, donate to Wikipedia. They have been hounding me. I mean, not like personally, but like <laughs> when I was doing my research, they finally broke me down. Oh, 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 oh boy, those little <laughs> ads they put up at the top of the page are quite intrusive it's literally like wikipedia will shut down in 15 minutes if we don't get your five dollars like jesus christ okay to be fair they do provide me with a lot of stoned entertainment so i think i can toss them a couple bucks it's a good website well yeah i mean i guess you don't get like dumbasses on it they have standards yeah it could be like twitter don't be like twitter (laughs) oh god Oh, that's a new dystopian nightmare. <laughs> like, Twitter was already bad, and it's gotten worse. But anyway, continue. I didn't think it could get worse, and yet. <laughs> um, so, uh, Yule Logs, a-, a wonderful treat. <laughs> a delicious Christmas dessert. And they're actually not that hard. Um, I think it's probably the rolling up that would fuck me up a little bit, just because, like, I'm not used to doing, like, that kind of technical baking stuff. Here's a hot tip. For all of you who are going to try to make a Yule Log this year, um, as soon as it comes out of the oven, make sure you put uh, parchment paper on the, not wax paper, parchment paper on the bottom of the the tray that you're baking it in. Uh, And then as soon as it comes out of the oven, you flip that bitch over on a tea towel that you've dusted with powdered sugar. You peel the baking paper off, dust the top with more powdered sugar, and then you roll the cake up in the towel. In theory, this sounds 
like a good idea in practice. Well, because the cake is still hot, so the ju- the um, so the, f- the you do flour- need to make the cake good enough to not crack it. <laughs> it's it's a also pretty easy cake, but yeah, if you get it while it's hot, it hasn't um set yet, so mm-hmm. it's still a little bendy basically and you can roll it up and then you let it cool in the towel rolled up so that way when you unroll it and put all the good shit in the inside and roll it back up it has like muscle muscle memory memory, (laughs) and it will go a lot easier without cracking and also cut off the bottom like two to three inches at an angle and then put it on the side so it looks like a branch with a a little smaller branch and that's been baking tips with emily (laughs) do you have anything more from france Nope, that was it. I, I've got the one thing for each country. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to go to Italy now. Ooh. Uh, so if you're into huge meals and those meals taking up six hours, uh, I, because... Yes, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, an Italian Christmas might be for you. So the holiday season runs from the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th, which I'm realizing that's not a long span of time between that and Christmas, and the timeline doesn't match up. Mary. I mean, it's tomorrow to Christmas. Well, no, like, just the Immaculate Conception happening on December 8th. I could have sworn the Immaculate Conception happened, I don't know, nine months prior. Well, look, they've condensed the whole calendar. Like, Jesus was not, we all know that Jesus was not born in December. He was born in the spring. Um, The Immaculate Conception is August 13th in some (laughs) places, which makes marginally more sense. But yes, they... It's all made up. They put it all in winter again to capitalize on existing pagan holidays, Weird. All right. So uh, it's celebrated from December 8th through January 6th, but Christmas is celebrated more over three days from the 24th to the 26th. Um, So Christmas Eve is pretty much their big event because you got to load up on the carbs before you go to mass at midnight. (laughs) I will say Christmas Eve is my preferred holiday. Yes. Um, So yeah, uh, thanks to Catholicism uh, and, you know, it being Italy, which is somehow more catholic than even mexico (laughs) uh meat is not eaten on christmas eve because it's the night before a feast which is yeah so in central and southern italy uh this christmas eve feast is known as god damn it sinone della vigila which is a multi-course christmas eve dinner that usually includes apps pasta and fish because fish isn't meat i mean i'd be on board for that just wait the focus is dishes with a seafood centerpiece like Bacala, salt cod, or capitone, which is eel, that has been fried and is occasionally served soaked in vinegar. Delicious. So, That actually no probably thanks. would taste pretty good. <laughs> it's I, fried and soaked in vinegar. It's basically like fish and chips. Yeah, and eel does have allegedly kind of a meatier taste. I've only ever had it in, like, Japanese food, so I don't know. It just... Seafood and I don't always get along. I will say also, like, I feel like eels get a bad rap as a food because of what they look like, you know, which is <laughs> yeah. bad. Like, no one wants to eat that, but I'm sure they taste <laughs> taste fine. Plenty of cultures use them as food. I mean, thankfully, Italy redeemed itself from the fried eel situation. <laughs> uh, with a bread cake hybrid, which I'm going to pronounce panettone, because I am from America. Panettone. It's my uh, Italian uh, accent. <laughs> According to the episode of How It's Made that I found on the subject, a loaf of traditionally made panettone can take up to two days to make because the theme we're going to see with holiday foods is that they are all a massive pain in the ass to make, and the reason they're only served during the holidays is because no one wants to fuck with it during the rest of the year. Correct. Uh, So the bread first originated in Milan in the 15th century, and it was referred to as pane di tono, which translates to luxury cake. (laughs) During those times, yeast was considered a very special ingredient, so it was only used to make bread for religious celebrations, like Christmas. Uh, by the mid-1800s, the Christmas bread had evolved and was being made with butter, eggs, sugar, and raisins, and other dried fruit. Essentially a very rich yet fluffy and kind of dry brioche stuffed with dried fruit and baked into a tall, dome-shaped loaf. That sounds really good. Yeah, I mean, you have to like put something on it because it is really dry, but it's real good once you do that. Um, So large-scale production made bread available to the masses in the 1900s, and soon it became a staple in Italian households during the holiday season. Because, like, it started out traditionally only being made around the holidays, and then you just kind of associated it with the holidays, kind of like Mm -hmm. in America. We can have gingerbread whenever the fuck we want, but we don't. (laughs) We associate it too strongly with Christmas now. Exactly. 
Uh, Italians who migrated to the U.S. during the 1900s brought this tradition with them, and it's lasted throughout the years. My family's not Italian, and we buy panettone for Christmas morning. <laughs> we also buy challah, which is... I mean, that's just good bread. Yeah, challah is amazing, but that's more of a, a Jewish Easter situ- well, Passover situation. Um, we also buy another bread that we'll talk about later, because my family is nothing if not carb-based. <laughs> Um, anyway, so today panettone is eaten with wine, coffee, or tea, and because it's relatively dry, some people like to eat the bread with a little bit of mascarpone cheese. Mm. Yeah, just soak that in. Yes. Um, I also hear it makes a really good French toast. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm buying one of these when we go to the store on Friday, because I've, I've got the panettone fever. Uh, anyway, that's Italy. Um, they also drink a lot of Prosecco around the holidays, but that is a As sparkling wine, and that's really all I have to say about that. So, This is what I ran into with a lot of the countries like I looked at, because like, yeah, you know, they make a roast or something. I'm like, great, that's not interesting to talk about. Yes, I ran into that problem with my last country. But I will say, Germany has some pretty good Christmas foods, and it's probably because Germany does Christmas better than anybody. Germany and, like, Sweden. Yes. You, you gotta go someplace cold to really get, like, that good, good Christmas. Yeah, where it snows and there's lots of trees, but, like, German is, like, uh, patient zero for Christmas yes. spirits. Uh, and one of the most beloved German holiday traditions are Christmas markets. Uh, so this is actually, you know, it's not just a German tradition. Like, there are, ger- there are Christmas markets pretty much everywhere, everywhere. But, like, Germany kind of did it first, and Germany does it best. Yeah, if you can find a German Christmas market around you, their potato salad, hot. Uh, so the first documented Christmas market, or Christkindlmarkt, was mm-hmm. held in Dresden, Germany in 1434. Uh, and today, the most famous markets are held in the cities of Dortmund, Dresden, Nuremberg, Frankfurt, and Stuttgart, each of which draws upwards of 2 to 3 million visitors each year. That's pretty good. So Christmas markets are traditionally held in the town square, where open-air stalls offer food, drinks, and other seasonable items, including Glühwein, which is Germany's take on spiced mulled wine. Which, you know, that's also not exclusive to Germany. Like, France has Wien Chaud, and Norway has Glog. So, like, and I think Italy also had their own version of hot spiced wine. I mean, you heat up the wine and you put some good stuff in it. It's not a difficult concept. Uh, it's actually been consumed for centuries. So, Romans were heating up wine as early as the 2nd century. Um, and even there's evidence that it was consumed in ancient Egypt as far back as 3000 BCE. Interesting. So, we've been doing this forever. Um, the name Glühwein roughly translates to glow wine, which is a reference to the hot irons that were once used to mull the wine. And the earliest documentation in Germany dates back to 1420 in the form of a gold-plated tankard that a German nobleman once used exclusively for drinking his Glühwein. Um, first of all, it's very German that the way that they make this delightful holiday beverage is with, like, hot metal <laughs> pokers. it up with hot irons. I feel like that probably isn't the case so much anymore, but, uh. No. Um, and also, I find it delightful when people have, like, a special cup to drink their holiday beverages out of. Like, <laughs> Travis has this little this little cup that he only drinks eggnog out of. <laughs> like, he's fucking Chevy Chase in Christmas Vacation. Delightful. Oh, he, he heard me said that, say that, too. I was hoping his video game would be too loud. <laughs> now, now he's thinking about his special eggnog cup and probably wanting <laughs> to drink eggnog. I know I am. Uh, so the <laughs> recipe for Glühwein has remained more or less the same, you know, since it first debuted. Uh, it is usually... I mean, it's hot wine with herbs. Yeah, it's usually prepared from red wine uh, and heated with cinnamon sticks, cloves, star anise, citrus, sugar, and vanilla pods. All good stuff. Uh, it is sometimes prepared mit schuss, which means with a shot of liquor, typically rum. Jesus. Uh, so while you're hanging around the Dresden Christmas market, uh, you can get some stolen along with your Glühwein. And Schillen is made with yeast, water, and flour. Uh, you can also add things like candied orange peel, raisins, almonds, spices like cardamom and, cardamom and cinnamon, and is then rolled in butter and sugar as soon as it comes out of the oven and topped with icing. Oh, well, that's different from the Schillen that I've had. This is according to the Wikipedia page. <laughs> I've not had Schillen. Um, The way I've, I've always had it um, and seen it made is that it's like a... Basically a brioche dough, so like a mm-hmm. shitload of butter and everything, um, and eggs. And then you mix in a bunch of dried fruit, and then you like pat it out, and then put a big old like slab of marzipan in it. 
<laughs> Delicious. And roll it up and then bake it. Oh. So the marzipan kind of melts in. Um, so the original stolen, Dresden stolen, generally considered considered to be the official stolen, uh, was first, first mentioned in an official document in 1474. Uh, it is produced by only 110 bakers in the world and distinguished by a special seal depicting King Augustus II, the strong. The strong. Yes. He's got two. <laughs> two little titles. The second, the strong. <laughs> if As he was Chris- really the strong, he'd be the first, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Uh, As a Christmas bread, Stolen was baked for the first time at the Council of Trent in 1545. <laughs> No shit. Uh, and at the time, the Advent season was a time of fasting, which means the Catholic Church had arbitrarily decided uh, that bakers were not allowed to use butter and had to use oil instead, which means that the stolen served at Trent probably wasn't very good. Yes. Um, that's a trend you'll notice with uh, holiday foods yes. uh, is that they were originally super plain because Catholics. And then over Ruined the years, everything. people were like, well, what if we put some butter and sugar in it? <laughs> What if we did it again, but good? What if we made it completely different? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, in the century prior, the Prince Elector of Saxony wrote to the Pope, requesting that Saxon bakers be allowed to use butter, as the oil in the region was very expensive, and it had to be made from turnips. I promise I will do the episode about the butter and the Catholics and the Protestants. (laughs) Butter is a thing, guys. Uh, So, his uh, first request to... The Pope was denied, uh, because of course it was. Uh, and we went through five more popes and a prince before finally, in 1490, Pope Innocent VIII wrote something called the Butter Letter, which granted the use of butter, but only for the Prince of Saxony and his household. God. Anyone else in the region who wanted to use butter had to pay a fine. And it took the Reformation um, for the ban to finally be lifted in Saxony. Again, we'll get into it later. I- <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as Emily has alluded to, Stolen has become a much better tasting bread in the last few centuries, though the traditional kind is still not as sweet, light, and airy as a lot of like the breads you'll see made around the world to you know imitate the original Stolen. I mean, I want my Stolen to be a fucking doorstop filled with almond paste. <laughs> <laughs> I really uh. just kind of want bread now. Yeah. Like just a semi-sweet bread. Uh, a cute uh, stolen story. I think I texted you about it briefly last night. During World War One or Two. One. One. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so you know. Um, yes. Well, you, you texted, about, texted to me last night. Okay. During that World War, um, the British and the Germans were, were fighting. Uh, I'm sure you guys have seen Wonder Woman. You know what it was like. Right? We were fighting the Germans in one. Yep. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, Christmas rolled around and both sides were like, dude, it's fucking Christmas. Let's call a truce. And then I think the British soldiers were like hanging out in their their trenches, uh, getting gangrene and whatever you did in trenches, um, sharing roast goose with the rats. <laughs> and they see <laughs> people coming through no man's land. Um, and it was the German sh- soldiers who came to share their Christmas treats with the British who also shared their treats with the Germans. And it was just like a very nice human thing, but they, they shared their, their stolen with the, uh, the British. And that's how stolen became like, it's also a food that served in, in uh, England during this time of year. Yeah. And they like put up a Christmas tree and they played football and it's very cute. And then three days later they went back to killing each other. So yes. Um, (laughs) not their fault. Uh, there's a whole thing with some kings and some relatives, and uh, it's all explained very succinctly in The King's Man, weirdly enough. <laughs> uh, and Rasputin is in that movie, so, you know, there you go. Anyway, I love Stolen. <laughs> but that's a good lead-in to my last country, which is England, the food of my oh, people. Boy. <laughs> boy, I sure bet there's going to be a lot of peas. White. <laughs> Actually... A cheese platter is traditionally served on Christmas morning. I could not figure out why. Uh, my family actually I mean, doesn't. why the hell not? Well, my family doesn't do that one, which I thought was weird. Bring it back. Bring right? cheese. Um, we do a lot of the other shit. I don't know why we can't do that one. So it's probably going to come as a shock to you, but Christmas in England is a lot like Christmas in America because we got most of our traditions from the English, um, who yeah, stole some stuff tracks. from the Germans. Because their king was German. Yes. 
The exception is that their Christmas dinner is a lot like our Thanksgiving dinner, and then Americans kind of go a bunch of different ways for their Christmas dinner, but the traditional English Christmas dinner is like turkey and sprouts and potatoes and all of that shit. Anyways. Good old meat and potatoes. Basically. um, Roast goose. (laughs) Why goose? Because, I don't know. I'm about to tell you. I think they're probably more... Do they have turkeys in England? Turkeys are a indigenous to I'm gonna check. the New World. Yes, yes. Um, so in short, uh, geese were common and big, much like turkeys were in the United States. Um, and goose was a common farmyard bird and a natural forager that came in handy after the harvest when they would turn a bunch of geese loose in the fields after they were done, <laughs> and the geese could find and eat all of the scattered grain that would otherwise be lost. Nice, feed your yes. goose for free. Um, thus, a, a goose was at its fattest and juiciest after the harvest, just in time for holiday celebrations. <gasps> Great timing. So this tradition of, you know, fatten up your geese, pick one, serve it for Christmas, uh, was a tradition that's kept up for a long time. Um, it weirdly experienced an alleged dip in popularity after the release of your favorite and mine, A Christmas Carol, <laughs> uh, because people, and I'm not kidding, associated geese, Christmas goose with the Cratchits and thus associated it with poor people and they didn't want that. <laughs> they literally read a Christmas carol and thought, oh wait, the poors are eating geese? We we must do something better. Look, the Victorians did some stuff. Um, <laughs> they did a lot of stuff that wasn't great. Uh, and they had some ideas about things. And I feel like they missed the point. <laughs> of Christmas as a holiday? Yes. So, anyways, um, that's where I realized that the article I had found was for a goose farm in the UK, and it was all a little bit propaganda-y <laughs> in the goose department after that. Very pro-please eat geese for Christmas. It was very pro-eating geese for Christmas. <laughs> so, eventually, the turkey was brought over to England, and it started to creep in popularity because they're easier, and let's face it, turkeys aren't Satan's lap birds. <laughs> I was going to say, you definitely get much more satisfaction out of eating a goose than a turkey. It's kind of like that time that I ate jellyfish out of spite. Like, <laughs> there's just, and that's why, like, I don't have a problem eating chicken at all, because chickens are terrible little monsters. So presumably you'll need to wash down all of that dark meat with something. So why not a big old glass of eggnog? Oh boy, is this a traditional English thing? Um, sort of. I'm realizing that I'm doing things from England that I don't actually like. You don't like eggnog? No, it's too, like, thick and, like, rich. It has the consistency of snot. This is fair. I, I will drink an eggnog latte occasionally, and I, I enjoy soy nog because it's not as um, heavy. But uh, there's also not a lot of fun trivia about pigs in a blanket or bucks fizz slash mimosas or cheese plates, which is Christmas stuff from the UK that I do like. And their pigs in a blanket are actually... Sausages wrapped in bacon. Ooh. Which is arguably better than American pigs in a blanket. I I mean, bacon versus bread. You're you're winning both ways. You could do both. You could do both. (laughs) And I think you should start that tradition. After we get through our countries, we'll talk about, like, what our family has. And there's probably room for some pigs in a blanket and a cheese tray. Um, so people, people, historians... Food historians, which is a thing that you can do as a job, and I didn't know that um, until, like, I don't know, 10 years ago when it was too late. (sighs) Anyway, so uh, cultural or, nope, not cultural. Give me a second. Culinary anthropologists, thank you, uh, believed eggnog began in Europe, as honestly a lot of things did. As early as the 13th century, medieval monks... In Britain, we're known to drink posset, which is a warm ale punch with eggs and figs. So beer, eggs, and figs. Interesting. I'm not opposed to it. I would have to try it. Yeah, it depends on, I mean, it's what kind of ale. Fair. Um, by the 17th century, sherry had become a, the primary ingredient, and it was popular to use this eggy beverage to toast one's health and prosperity during the holidays. It was, of course, an aristocrat's drink because eggs, milk, and sherry were scarce and for rich people. Um, When the drink made it to the American colonies, it took on a whole new taste and popularity uh, because the rum that American colonists could get from the Caribbean was considerably less expensive than brandy and sherry uh, shipped from England. And thank God for that. 
Yeah, I can't imagine it was sherry. Yeah, it this change meant that we didn't have to drink sherry, but it also made the drink more accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. And now you can get it starting in like October. Uh, so that's eggnog. I do um, love a good eggnog. I have eggnog in my fridge right now. I'm, I'm we big on also eggnog. have eggnog in our fridge. Travis made me an eggnog latte the other day. I and say, was- I've been making eggnog lattes in the morning and it's so good. It was delicious, but my stomach later was like, what the fuck are you doing <laughs> drinking all this cream and egg? Just drank like three big eggs. You drink a milkshake with coffee in it, you jerk. It, it's essentially a milkshake, yes. Yeah, as far as uh, uh, wintertime beverages go, I'm, I'm more of an apple cider person. I I do love a good apple cider. I was saying I, had, I made a simmer pot on Sunday, mm-hmm. and I put in like apples and oranges and cinnamon and cloves. And it just smelled like apple cider in my house for three days. Yeah, a little uh, apple cider with uh, some spiced rum in it. Apple cider. But you drop in a few little red hots and let them melt. Uh, That actually used to be one of my favorite things as a kid. And then I developed like a slight intolerance to cinnamon and red hots are one of the things that set it off. Right. Yeah, (laughs) that would not agree with you at all. (laughs) Uh, So finally, we have Christmas pudding, which is not actually a pudding, Ah. but a steamed doorstop of a cake filled with dried fruits, nuts, and spices. In England, right, like most desserts are called puddings, regardless of consistency. Yes. Um, What they, what we would call a pudding is what they would call a custard. Gotcha. Um, It's often topped with brandy-infused butter or some kind of alcoholic sauce. It's also often lit on fire as like a spectacle. delightful that nothing says christmas more than like a giant fire on your dining room table i mean my favorite thanksgiving tradition is my mom putting the uh sweet potatoes under the broiler and setting the marshmallows on fire on accident (laughs) um so as a note you might notice that a lot of these desserts that both sarah and i have mentioned heavily feature dried or candied fruits it is winter yes because it's winter and drying or candying fruits was the way to preserve them because there are no fresh fruits really in in winter i mean there are but you know you're not gonna get like fresh oranges or anything except those little clementines what's the deal with that are those christmas things clementines yeah yeah they're in season this time of year and ah for as long as i remember my mom always puts one at the bottom of our stocking oh interesting i mean i just assume they were an all-year thing yeah they're they're most like they're the best uh between like november and february i think uh, pomegranate's also considered a winter fruit. Mm. Yeah. That I get. I don't know. I put pomegranate in like the same category as like cranberries, where it just feels like kind of a seasonal fruit. Mm, yeah. Oh man, I love cranberries. I'm going through a real cranberry thing this year. Ooh, yes. Mm. Uh, so the Christmas pudding originated in the 14th century as a sort of porridge, originally known as frumenti, made with whole wheat, boiled in milk seasoned with cinnamon and colored with saffron so it was literally cream of wheat guys i'm realizing i also should have done fruitcake but fruitcake is just a different version of christmas pudding right except with fruitcake you like make the cake and then you spend the next like two months uh spritzing it in brandy and wrapping it back up really that's what it takes to do fruitcake yeah fruitcake is aged never thought about it yeah you have to start making fruitcake around like earlier than halloween preferably um, so in the 17th century, when stuff started to get less rank, uh, <laughs> they made changes to the recipe. Uh, it was thickened with eggs, breadcrumbs, dried fruit, and beer or spirits. And it came to resemble something a little bit more like a sweet pudding. Um, however, it was the Victorians who really nailed it down. The Victorians did do some good things. They did. They fixed some things, but they also made a lot of things worse. <laughs> like India. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. <laughs> That sounded mean. I'm just saying they probably shouldn't have colonialized an entire country like that. I understood your meaning, but yes, <laughs> good clarification. <laughs> so I, I hope you're ready for a good dose of uh, Christianity. Uh, yay. So according to Victorian tradition, Christmas pudding should have 13 ingredients that represented Jesus and the 12 disciples. Why, why must you make everything so elaborately Christian? <laughs> because it's boring. And if you don't make it fun, like who gives a shit? <laughs> Uh, traditionally, these ingredients included raisins, currants, suet, which is um, beef fat, uh, brown sugar, breadcrumbs, citron, which is kind of citrus, uh, lemon peel, orange peel, flour, mixed spices, eggs, milk, and brandy. And I don't think that was 12 things. Hold on. Raisin, currants, suet, brown sugar, breadcrumbs, peel, orange peel, flour, mixed spices, eggs, milk, and brandy. That's 13. So yes, Great. never mind. Jesus is the brandy. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, brandy is also traditionally poured over the pudding after it's done steaming and set alight. Uh, the flaming, uh, the flaming brandy is said to represent the passion of Christ. So yes, the brandy literally is Jesus. Yes. The last Sunday before Advent became known as Stir Up Sunday. And this was when the ingredients of the pudding would be assembled and stirred up in a bowl with a wooden spoon, representing the manger from east to west, symbolizing the journey taken by the three wise men. I'm so bored. Traditionally, every family member stirs the pudding three times and makes a secret wish. I'm assuming the three has something to do with, like, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, they didn't get into it. I'm just going to assume. Sometimes a small toy or coin uh, will be slipped into the mix, much like the Rosca and the King Cake. Only you should never eat a tamale that was given to you by a British person. (laughs) Especially if the Mexican Week episode of the Great British Bake Off is any indicator about their understanding of Mexican cuisine. Um, And that's that's Christmas pudding. Delightful. Where are we going next? We are going, we are ending our Christmas tour in Norway. Oh, I love love this. (laughs) Norway has a long and storied history as a fishing nation. So it comes as no surprise that they've incorporated seafood into their Christmas traditions. Oh, right. You're going to outgross everything that I've done. (laughs) Cooked cod. We've spent the whole episode talking about like nice, good things to have for Christmas. And this is what we're ending on. Uh, So cooked cod is a favorite Christmas Eve meal in the southern part of Norway. Uh, but the longest-standing Norwegian Christmas tradition is lutefisk. Mm. So while it is still consumed in Norway, it, lutefisk is actually infinitely more popular in the parts of the U.S. where it has the most Norwegian descendants, specifically Minnesota and Wisconsin. <laughs> actually, really loved lutefisk in the uh, Norwegian version of the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> <laughs> is that a ludicrous joke? Yes. <laughs> Just gonna let you sit there in your shame. <laughs> No, remember the the uh, ninth Fast and the Furious movie where they launched uh, Ludafisk into Ludafisk into space. So for the uninitiated, Ludafisk is exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, it's fish or fisk, typically <laughs> cod, uh, dried to the consistency of leather, and then reconstituted in lye, loot. Yeah, you know lye—the stuff that you make soap out of. Have you seen Fight Club? <laughs> So yes, this does sound objectively terrible, but you 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 may be either surprised or horrified to know that lye is actually com- a common thing that you use in baking. Uh, you use it in like pretzels and bagels and yeah. to cure fresh olives. Still, uh, <laughs> we'll say the lye is mostly rinsed away, um, oh. but is still so close to toxins that the state of Wisconsin specifically exempts it from classification as a toxic substance in its laws regulating workplace safety. After we finish this, I have a question for you about a uh, thing in the Midwest um, that has also had to be spoken out about. But continue with your nasty fish. (laughs) So the dish itself is white in color and slightly translucent, kind of like a flaky jello-like consistency. Um, Here's where I'm going to say I'm not Norwegian. um, So thankfully, I've never been obligated to try it and won't. It doesn't sound good. It's just when Uh, there's lefsa available, why are you eating this? (laughs) This is my next sentence. Is typically served dishes of melted butter. I think that's part of it. I think that is what saves it. Is you dip it in a lot of melted butter, and that kind of covers the taste of the lye. Yeah. Um, so melted butter, and then standard midwestern, midwestern side dishes like mashed potato, coleslaw, green beans, and occasionally lefsa, which is potato bread. Potato bread. Potato bread. Potato flatbread with butter and sugar. Lefsa is amazing. Uh, we actually had lefsa at Thanksgiving because uh, Travis's family is Ooh. Italian and Norwegian. I love that. And they've never made you try Ludafisk? No, thankfully, I don't think his mom has gone on that kick, but they do make <laughs> lefsa like once or twice a year. That's great. Uh, so Ludafisk dinners are especially popular among Lutheran churches uh, in Nordic fraternal groups, and 750 tons of it is eaten every December. Perverts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Ludafisk as a tradition dates back to the 15th or 16th centuries. It first appears in Scandinavian literature in 1555 in the writings of Olaf Magnus, who <laughs> described how to prepare it and how to best eat it again with lots of butter. Uh, so it's there's the a couple. Way. <laughs> there are a couple legends about how Ludafisk began became a thing. Uh, the first is that Viking fishermen hung up their cod on dry to dry on tall birch racks, and then their village was like attacked by neighboring vikings and those racks were like pushed over and set on fire and they 
burned all up, and then a rainstorm blew in from the North Sea and put the fire out. So the fish that remained was left to soak in this puddle of, like, rainwater and, like, birch ash uh, until it was discovered by hungry Vikings who, with nothing better to eat, reconstituted the fish and had a feast. Sure. (laughs) It doesn't sound good, but um, another legend claims that St. Patrick attempted to poison Viking raiders in Ireland by feeding them lye-soaked fish, which feels more accurate, even though this didn't happen. That sounds like something he'd do, though. The the, um, catch was that it didn't actually kill them. They thought it was delicious and became a prized delicacy. That also sounds accurate, so... (laughs) Uh, more practically, preserving food was just, like, a basic necessity when you live in Norway and you're facing down, like, eight months of winter. And lye was just an easy way of preserving food and could be prepared in the kitchen by boiling wood, ash, and water. Just, I'm a little iffy on something that, like, if you have just a little bit too much, it kills you. <laughs> you rinse it off. <laughs> uh, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, more than 950,000 Norwegians emigrated to the United States bringing lutefisk with them. So today there are actually as many Americans with primarily Norwegian heritage, um, as many as, as there are in Norway itself, like 4.5 million people, which is very oh, impressive. Uh, and then the bonus fun fact that I'm going to leave you on is that the self-proclaimed lutefisk capital of the world is in Madison, Minnesota, uh, which is just about like an hour from where I grew up. And it boasts a fiberglass statue of a cod named Lou T. Fisk. Best known for his hit song, <laughs> Move Bitch. <laughs> that's lutefisk um i mean that was all very interesting it still sounds disgusting <laughs> no i would never eat it it, d- it does not sound good to me i think the people who do eat it like do it for the like the pride of it yeah it's kind of like how at my family reunion someone makes vinegar pie and it tastes like buttholes but we eat it because it's tradition yes so this is not related to to lutefisk but I remember reading something at some point about how a state in the Midwest had to issue like a health warning against people eating raw hamburger around the holidays. Is this something that you remember or am I like losing it? No, but let me Google this. Or like not maybe maybe it wasn't hamburger, but it was like raw meat. (laughs) Yeah, I found it. (laughs) Uh, Wisconsin officials warn against cannibal sandwich holiday dish with raw meat. This is from... ABC6 Action News in Philadelphia. <laughs> Wisconsin residents are being urged by health officials to pass on eating a traditional holiday dish this year to avoid by avoid getting sick. A cannibal sandwich considered a holiday favorite in the state consists of raw ground beef on bread with sliced onion, salt, and pepper. <laughs> but eating raw meat is never recommended because of the bacteria it can contain, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services DHS said in a tweet on Saturday. DHS, which says it issues this reminder annually, (laughs) elaborated on its warning in another social media post. Time for our annual reminder that there's one hashtag holiday tradition that you need to pass on. Raw meat sandwiches, sometimes called tiger meat, are cannibal sandwiches, the state health department wrote on Facebook. Many Wisconsin families consider them to be a holiday tradition, but eating them poses a threat for salmonella, E. coli, another word I can't pronounce, and listeria bacteria that can make you sick. And no, it doesn't matter where you buy your beef. Ground beef should always be cooked to an internal temperature of 160 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Everyone in Wisconsin is like, oh, geez, I can't believe that Jeffrey Dahmer did that stuff. And then they have this shit and like no one's surprised. (laughs) Look, Wisconsin is a garbage state. We've talked about this. Anyway. uh, Yeah. like, that just brought that screaming back to me as something horrifying that I read a couple years ago. Um, so we're, Thanks we're gonna, for reminding me of that. Like, that's something, like, I definitely heard of when it was going viral, but... I'll forgive popcorn salad, but I will not <laughs> forgive that. <laughs> so we're going to end end our holiday episode. Uh, we'll talk about uh, what, what we have traditionally around the yeah, holidays. Yeah, what's your holiday tradition, Emily? So I, I believe I already talked about our... December 23rd, which is a a lovely cheese pizza just for me. (laughs) But on on Christmas Eve, that's that's kind of, it's my favorite. And we've fallen away from this tradition a little bit in the last couple years, but we always used to have hamburgers. And for some reason, we always had them in pita instead of buns. I don't fucking know why. And we all like, they fall apart. It sucks, but we just kept doing it. (laughs) 
I feel like that was something like one year you just couldn't get hamburger buns, so yeah. you substituted, and then it just became a thing. I, and that's my guess. I don't also know. Also, sautéed mushrooms and onions on them, which my grandma hates doing. And one year, we were just like, just don't make them. She's like, but I have to. I'm like, just don't make them. <laughs> so we, we have that, uh, and then um, yeah, either chocolate mousse or a Yule log, since I have taken over doing doing the dessert because chocolate mousse is a pain in the ass but my grandma's recipe is really good and if i can get her to tell me the actual recipe and not just like feel it with your heart instructions um i will post it which is perfect for mousse i'm sure oh yeah uh it has a little bit of grand marnier in it what's that uh it's an orange liqueur oh yes and one year i hit a little too hard and i still hear about it uh was everybody wasted at christmas or you know, it you can tell it's in there. Uh, some people just had to like sit down for a little bit. Um, <laughs> like my mom goes nuts baking around the holidays, so like I always make fudge and like sugar cookies, gingerbread. Um, my mom makes rum balls. Ooh! But one year they're like nuts and candied shit and like flour, and they're good. It's like a little cake ball almost. But one year she was out of rum, and she was like, "I'll just make it with Yukon Jack." <laughs> sure. She gave me one, and I was, like, 14 at the time. I had to go lay down. (laughs) But, yeah, that's that's Christmas Eve. Um, And then Christmas morning, we have many kinds of bread. (laughs) If we can get it, panettone, stolen, croissants, holla, if it's available. Oh, man. I'm going to start this Christmas tradition at my family. Yeah, just bread. Bread breakfast. Uh, But then she... My mom makes a huge pan of scrambled eggs with green onions and cheese and uh, mushrooms and ham. And it's amazing. That sounds nice. Yeah. And then I'll make a, a little Christmas dinner if I have time of, of ham and rolls and uh, scalloped potatoes. So it's nice. What, what do you do? So our big family tradition, we don't have a lot, honestly, but we do do oyster stew on Christmas Eve. And it's very simple. You get little pints of oysters from the grocery store. They have to be like preserved, obviously, because they're being shipped from God knows where. We're in Minnesota, remember. <laughs> they're being shipped from either uh, New England or probably Alaska or the Puget Sound. Just yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> um, but my rule is always one pint of oysters per person. Oh, God. Because there will never, ever be enough oysters in the stew for my dad and his brothers and also me because I fucking love oyster stew. But it's really, it's just like a simple, you like blanch like milk and cream and butter and you add the oysters in with some of the oyster sauce in the pints that the water that they come shipped with. It's called oyster liquor. (laughs) Yeah, whatever they come with. Uh, You salt and pepper and then you throw in a bunch of those oyster crackers. It's so good. It's just a really salty, like brothy thing. I'm sure oysters. if I wasn't super allergic to oysters, <laughs> that would be delightful. Yeah. Um, it sounds a lot like a clam chowder without the yeah. potatoes well, and stuff. A little bit. It, it doesn't have the consistency of clam chowder. It really is like kind of just like milk and cream oh, that's God. heated up. So it's just kind of like a little more just regular milk consistency, I guess, or regular cream consistency. So it's a savory cereal. Essentially, yes. <laughs> it's very good, though. I'm a big fan. Uh, and then our traditional Christmas dessert that I don't make and my mom never really made, but my aunt was big into making, um, were Belgian cookies, which, of course, came over from the motherland. Of course. Um, but my grandma actually had, like, an iron. I think my aunt has it now and still uses it. That's probably 150 years old at this point. You gotta heat that up and you... It's kind of like almost like a sugar cookie sort of dough. You add some rum to it Ooh. and then you squish it in between these irons and it comes out looking like a little waffle. They're very thin and very good. So like an unfilled stroop waffle. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Ooh, that does sound delicious. They're they're very good. I haven't had one in years. And I really would like some. <laughs> Gotta pay my aunt and that and be like, can you send me some cookies? If we can get our shit together, we'll post a recipe for uh, oyster stew. Oyster and, stew? Uh, yeah, I will, actually. I have my mom's recipe card around here somewhere. Yeah, I don't have the mousse recipe and the bouche de noel recipe is a little long, but... I make some pretty dope peanut butter fudge um, that even an idiot can make. So, <laughs> um, well, happy holidays, everybody. Um, there may be another surprise uh, from us in uh, two weeks, Shh. or we there won't do- be a surprise. <laughs> no surprises. Maybe it's not two weeks. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's right now. Maybe um, it's never. <laughs> no, we'll we'll be back. <laughs> 
Um, we're just going to finish our little half year break because uh, it's tradition. Yes. To start again in February, but we'll we're be back. Very tired. <laughs> it, it, the sunset at like 445 tonight. Please be kind to me. I still have to do all my name change paperwork. Well, no, I actually paid a service to do my name change paperwork, but I have to go to the social security office, guys, and that's going to take a while. That's going to take about three weeks. So <laughs> we'll see you guys at some point. Uh, happy holidays. And happy holidays. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Goodbye. Happy Hanukkah and other wintertime holidays. Happy everything. Merry happy. I have the worst immune system. The best because it's like always on its guard, but the worst because it <laughs> it's like what is that? Cinnamon? The f- Are you trying to have an oyster? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to sobelowmedia.com. This this is as above, so below. <laughs>